Hello and welcome to Science Shambles, producer Trent here. This episode of the podcast was streamed live as part of the Stay at Home Festival and was previously available on the Stay at Home Festival podcast, but a lot of people have asked if we could put uh, those episodes up here on the Science Shambles feed as well. So that is what we've done. Uh, The only thing to bear in mind is obviously these were live streamed over our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Cosmic Shambles. The only thing to keep in mind is obviously these shows were streamed live on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Cosmic Shambles. So there may be some visual elements that don't translate as well to audio and also, you know, people's internet connections and the, the challenges of doing live shows during lockdown. There might be a few technical glitches here and there that you wouldn't expect from the normal studio edition of the show. And remember, you can support us at the Cosmic Shambles Network, patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. If you head there and subscribe, uh, not only do you get lots of goodies, extra shows, bonus live streams and all that sort of stuff, uh, that's that support is what enables us to keep making these podcasts and the live streams and everything else uh, while we can't be out doing live shows like we normally would be. And check out all the other great science and culture content we've got going on at CosmicShambles.com. There's the new uh, exclusive documentary series we made with the European Space Agency with Helen Chersky and Ginny Smith and Tim Peake and others. Lots of other live streams, blogs, podcasts and plenty of things to keep you occupied. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday Science Q&A, which has uh, become quite, I think it's about the ninth one that we've done so far. And today I'll quickly tell you who's going to be on. We've got uh, Helen Chersky, as usual. We've got Hannah Fry and we have John Butterworth. And later on, I'm also going to be talking to the children's author, Kate Cunningham, as well. And first of all, as usual, we have to go through all the kind of hoo-ha, various little bits of information for you. Uh, one is uh, we're not on next week. Next Sunday, rather than Science Q&A at three o'clock, at uh, approximately seven o'clock, we're going to do our show live from the Albert Hall, except we're not from the Albert Hall, live from various different attics. We will be live from lots of attics doing the show that we were going to be doing show at, at the Albert Hall, Sea Shambles. Uh, we still have pretty much everyone who is going to be on that. Lem Cisse is going to be with us and uh, Helen's going to be with us. And uh, we've got uh, Steve Baxter is going to be with us. We've got British Sea Power. Uh, we've got uh, God, we, we've got uh, Chris Hadfield. He's going to be joining us as well. Uh, there's a couple of people I forgot because they've only just been added. Uh, Josie Long's going to be doing it. Liz Bonin's going to be doing it. Grace Petrie's going to be doing it. Helen Scales is going to be doing it. And also uh, Kobe Smulders is going to be doing it, who you may well, you probably know best from such shows as How I Met Your Mother and the Marvel Avengers series. And also we've got Brian Cox as well talking about why he loves an octopus. It's a true story. And uh, so on that particular night, like today, I should say, um, thank you very much, everyone who's been contributing, not merely questions, but also uh, financially as well, or just by watching as well. All of those things are are useful and good and i hope giving you some sense of connection during this strange lockdown period um but the uh quick to mention that we've got uh, our patreon is very useful for us that's how we make all of our programs and we're going to have a trailer halfway through this show about something that's being done with the european space agency which is going to be going up very very soon all of the things that we make we make pretty much with for for no profit we just we plow our money back in uh to all the projects that we do so if you can support us via patreon that is great if you can support us via the tip jar which is somewhere on your 
screen. That is also wonderful because we've managed to give, uh, I think, about fifteen to twenty thousand pounds so far to various artists and art centres uh, around the country as well who've been finding it very difficult during this lockdown period. So any of your tips also go to that and to hopefully keeping a kind of uh, artistic and creative world going when it is uh, a troublesome time. Um, and uh, oh, we've actually yeah, there we go. In fact, it should be twenty five thousand, I think, now that we've uh, that we're going to be giving uh, away. And uh, eventually, I'm going to start embezzling. I think because I've realised I'm not going to have any live shows to do in the next eight months. Anyway, before I start embezzling, I'll buy more corduroy. Yeah, that's what I'm going to spend on more corduroy jackets. Anyway, we're going to go to uh, our guest for today. There's probably more things that Trent wants me to tell you as well. Uh, but before that, uh, I'm going to do our show and tell. As you know, every single week, our different scientific guests have something they want to show and tell, and it gets harder and harder for, of course, Helen Chersky because she's on every single week. So now we're going to find out. Helen, what have you found? In but by the way, you haven't yet resorted to what we've had on the on the daily show and tells. Uh, we have had quite a few people who've eventually gone. Oh, I didn't read the email properly. Here's my cat. But you've never uh, resorted to that yet. Helen, what have you got for us today? For us today? Uh, well, uh, well, fortunately, I don't have a cat, either alive or dead. Somewhere underneath the television, um, I found my bowl of champagne corks. Now, I never intended, I know I'm a bubble physicist, I never intended to start collecting champagne corks. The reason I did it was that it was a couple years and years ago, and then I started picking them up. And after having them for about five years, I actually looked at them properly. And I want to show you something about champagne corks. Firstly, because I think it's good for everyone to remember that there will be a time when we all feel like drinking champagne pain again i think it's important it's not coming yet but it is there so the thing that is so here's a champagne cork um and the thing that is in here we go see what the likeness is now so this is the champagne cork there we go now the thing to think about uh, to notice is the shape right so we all know they've got this kind of i'm going to talk underneath it they've got this kind of mushroom shape here now if you look at the bottom of it you can see the two there's two kind of layers on the bottom there's all this compressed stuff up there and there's these two layers on the bottom there and then there's holes in the bottom. Now, what this is, is a beautiful demonstration of how a cork, the bark of a cork tree works and why it's used for uh, champagne. Obviously, the point with champagne is that the stuff's full of carbon dioxide. You've got to trap it in there. You don't want it to get out. The reason that champagne is good, it's really squishy. Now, this stuff up the top here, these are all just little bits of cork that are cheap. They've been squished together. These bits down the bottom, these are the ones doing the work. So the cork bark has a layer, the outer layer of the tree, and it, but the, the tree needs to breathe, so it's got little holes going through it. So these two discs at the bottom, they are layers of bark that have been cut into circles. But the problem is that because the tree needs to breathe, they've got holes going through them. Because you can see the holes are going into the cork there. So the reason that there are two layers is that they put them both in and they twist them and the holes don't line up. So although the bark can breathe, the tree can't breathe, but these bits push outwards. These are the bits that are doing the work of pushing outwards. So when the cork pops out, those two bits push out the most. And that's why corks are mushroom shaped. But anyway, the point is that even things you pick up off the floor can be really interesting. And I highly recommend with appropriate cautions, if it's a weird environment, pick things up off the floor and have a look at them. So that's my show and tell. It's how a champagne cork works and what it can show you about uh, tr why basically trees having to breathe is the reason that champagne corks have this shape. And I just think that's fun. So that's and as a bubble physicist, do you, I mean, if, if you are having champagne at some kind of event or other, are you able to look at, and look at some of the bubbles and think this is going to be, is there anything within the bubble itself which will suggest <laughs> this is going to be better? Obviously, it's it's easy if it's going to be terrible. There's very few bubbles or whatever. But is there anything you can tell from the, the, the shape? Yeah. And 
Uh, you can make yourself very unpopular at parties. You can tell the glass, you can tell the uh, host that they haven't cleaned their champagne glasses properly. That doesn't go down well. Down well. Uh, you can you can tell a bit about the quality of the champagne. It's actually more about the shape of the glass, and you can see uh, the shape of the glass determines the taste of the drink. And so you can see from the bubbles how strongly the little bubble engine. So the reason the glass, a champagne glass, has that shape, the sort of narrow thing, is that there is a bubble engine in there. And it is uh, the shape of the glass determines how the engine works. And from the bubbles, you can see how well the engine is working. And all of that is about delivering flavor up your nose. So, so for some champagnes, you want little bubbles because it allows the flavors to develop very slowly. And for some, the young champagne, I am not, I'm from the north. We don't know what champagne is. Um, it's this thing the southerners have. Um, but, you know, so bubbles rise to the top and the young champagne, you want big bubbles because then they spit stuff up your nose and basically delivers champagne up your nose because where you taste champagne is up your nose, not on your tongue. So so the, the, the bubble, there's a bubble engine in there which is helping that flavour be delivered. And that, that I have just given you, that is the two-minute version. Imagine me after a glass of champagne at a party. This can go on for quite a long time. <laughs> what is lovely is I've just seen both Hannah and John actually crossing your name off uh some lists that they have it happens. um it i'm now trying to work out whether to go to hannah or not because though you at home can't see everyone i can always see everyone and hannah was just i was thinking about bubbles because she was just swigging directly from a large family-sized san, san pellegrino sparkling bottle i thought if i go straight to her will she still have bubbles in her throat will it lead to <laughs> gassy statistics but let's find out if it's going to be gassy statistics and mathematics that was a bottle of san pellegrino not just wine because you know it's <laughs> It could have happened. Um, okay, so I didn't read the email properly, so I've got a tell rather than a show and tell, but I, I think you'll forgive me. Um, because I want to talk to you a little bit about chaos. So, okay, I think everyone pretty much knows, uh, anyone who would watch this show probably knows what chaos is. But I think the best explanation of it that I've ever seen was in the film Jurassic Park, uh, where there's a moment where, oh God, I've forgotten the actor's name. What's his name? Jeff Goldblum, Stanley, that's Jeff it. Jeff Goldblum, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, where he uh, he takes Laura Dern's hand and embraces it very lovingly and he gets a drop of water and he uh, just uh, puts it on the back of her hand and watches which direction it goes in and then does the same thing again and demonstrates that the drop of water goes uh, ends up in a completely different place. So this is the idea of chaos, essentially, that a tiny, tiny difference in initial conditions can end up having a massive, uh, massive impact in the final outcome. So a tiny difference in the imperfections in your skin or where you place the water droplet can completely change where the water droplet ends up. Okay, so that much, I guess, most of us know. But the question is, where what has chaos ever done for me right what has chaos ever done practically um and there is a really nice little story uh about uh, a very brave spaceship um that i want to share with you which i think illustrates just how powerful chaos can be so this is back in the 70s uh, and there was a spaceship called the international sun earth explorer 3 catchy name uh which was launched off into space and it was given a very particular job of uh, pootling around the sun and uh, it was supposed to just study how solar winds um, were impacting the Earth's magnetic field. So it did its job very nicely, all good, right, for a number of years. But then in 1982, NASA decided that they wanted to give this little spaceship a different mission. So uh, a few years later, a comet was going to pass through our solar system. And NASA decided they, wanna, they wanted to send this spaceship off on a little uh, drive-by a little fly pass through the comet's tail when it eventually came to the uh, solar system. The only problem was that this uh, spaceship or, or spacecraft 
had hardly any fuel left on board. So it couldn't just, you know, zoom around and, and uh, intersect with the comet as it came through. But luckily, this spacecraft was sitting in what's known as a Lagrangian point. So it's this very special point uh, in the Earth, Moon, Sun uh, 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 system, which uh, is where the, the gravitational forces of those three bodies perfectly balance one another out. Um, so essentially what that means is if you're sitting in that, that point, if you uh, just nudge yourself a tiny bit in one direction, you'll fly off towards the moon. If you nudge yourself in, a, in another direction, you'll fly off towards the sun. Another direction, you'll fly off um, towards the earth. So it's very, very similar to that drop on the back of your hand, just a tiny change, and you can end up pretty much anywhere you like in the earth-sun-moon system. So that is essentially what NASA did. They did their calculations. They worked out exactly where they wanted the spacecraft to be uh, and when. They did a little nudge, sent it off uh, around the moon to spin itself around the moon, five, uh, uh, five orbits of the moon, um, and then uh, perfectly intersected with this comet uh, on the 11th of September 1985 using only 15 blasts of its rocket, which I think is kind of a nice example of uh, what you could do even with very little fuel on board. I love things. Like, I was just reading about um, Apollo 8, uh, yes. you know, the, the uh, Anders Borman uh, Lovell mission, which is, uh, you know, it was a very important one in terms of actually we saw the other side of the moon and, and working out different kind of mapping it out. And just there's a beautiful bit where towards the end of the mission, it's kind of they can all almost all of them can have a little bit of a relax now because he goes, Newton's doing the driving now. And I just find <laughs> things like that. Just there's a real... <laughs> beauty in that level of understanding which is so way beyond me and that is also the great uh, mission because it has um earth rise where, where earth, you know that, that where no one knew that image it was literally at one point hey look out the window look out the window where's the bloody camera that's great that's the planet you know and that is uh, as people have said before you know that the, we went to the moon not to discover the moon but to discover the earth um John Butterworth. Now, Jeff Goldblum was mentioned there, and I was just thinking the other day, he's played, because the, the scientist in Jurassic Park, and it, as a wonderful as, uh, as Seth Brundle um, in The Fly, one of my favourite um, on-screen scientists, doomed, of course, uh, but never, as, as so many of you are, oh, doomed. <laughs> I just want to know that as, as physicists on screen, um, you know, do you have certain where you go, that is how I like to be thought of? I mean, not oh. mutating into another species. <laughs> yeah, um, there's a the film Sunshine. I'm, I'm sorry, this is going to be name dropping. name dropping your your mate again now. But, but Brian Brian Cox was the advisor on Sunshine. But Killian Murphy plays a physicist in that. Um, and in fact, in, in on the web page um, for that uh, on the one of the virtual spin-offs on the DVD, um, there's a paper on the on his desk by me and Brian, which he was apparently reading, but. Brian was the scientific advisor for that film, but I think the main thing they did was Killian Murphy watched him and plays him in the film, basically, or plays Brian doing science in the film. And that's quite accurate representation, actually. I mean, mainly it involves sitting behind the laptop and not talking to anyone most of the time. So. Yeah, no, I, I like the fact because, of course, yeah, he was mainly a scientific advisor on what do scientists look like and how do they do sums, think, not on the advising does a nuclear bomb restart the sun. I think, yeah, uh, so I skip that bit and merely continually harangue him for being a science advisor on a film where a nuclear bomb restarts the sun. Ad advice can always be rejected, right? I mean, you're just an advisor. Look what's going on at the moment. You never know. You who's, never who's, know who's, whose advice gets taken and whose doesn't. Do you? Don't you turn this bleak now? Uh, show and tell. Have you got something to show and tell us? I do. I do. I've got this. Can you see this? It's my key ring, right? Oh yeah. 
Yeah, but there's a bit of electronics board on it there, right? So the, the key ring makes me a bit sad, actually, because they're all my keys to my CERN office and the little flat in Geneva that we use when we're out there working, and I haven't seen that since January, December, something like that. Um, but the, the thing I wanted to show, really, was not the keys, but this thing, which has got a little hole drill. It's an electronics board with a hole drill through it. That was That's what on there is a flash analog-to-digital converter, of which was absolutely cutting edge about 1990. And we had to make 24,000 of them, if I remember, at the Rutherford lab in Harwell, um, uh, in order for my experiment that I was doing my PhD on to work. And we were late, and um, it didn't. we didn't get them. So the first year of the, my experiment, um, actually, we couldn't read the data out from the detector because we couldn't digitize it with these things. And then we should, so in 1992, I think, finally, we got them all in, and we worked out. I'm going to try and share a screen, because when I say detector, again, I want to show you this. I don't know whether Trent can handle this or whether I'm going to mess everything up, but I'm just going to try and share a screen. That's a true physicist. I don't know if this is going to break everything, but let's give it a go. <laughs> John, what happened to the other 23,999? And um, it didn't, we didn't get them. So the first year of what? my experiment, um, actually, we couldn't read the data back from the detection. Oh, no, you've messed around with many worlds theory now, <laughs> and we're, we're catching you in another universe slightly behind yourself. <laughs> Oh, look at this. I hope everyone at home, I don't know if you can see this, but we're just going further and further into uh, the wormhole creating. <laughs> This is like a Charlie, Charlie Kaufman movie. At the end of it, we're all going to be very, very small. It's going to be terrifying. But that was a very interesting experiment. Um, What's going on? I, I have no idea what you've, how you've managed to break that. No, no, don't worry. No, we're, yeah, we can't see your screen. All we can hear is a recording that you appear to have made of the last three minutes. Uh, I think we can see you. Ladies and gentlemen, in action, honestly, if any of you have worked with physicists, you will know how chemists get the bad reputation for, you know, saying fire. It's not the chemist. It's not the chemist. Who there we go. I think we're back to normal. So um, well, that was a very so you were telling us that you went into physics initially as a uh, was it a, a key ring manufacturer? Oh, is John gone now? can't hear us. Oh well, John, John's John's in silence now. Helen, let's well, have. I'm a still here. I just muted myself. Because... Recording that you're here oh, it's still playing. Yeah, you you still playing. yourself. <laughs> Keep muting yourself. Um, John, we'll, we'll come back to John. Uh, maybe not this I'm week. Maybe leave. not in this I hope week. Break. Told me back. Yeah, we'll, we'll call you back. Time travel, though, that's apparently the way to do it. <laughs> oh, that's, uh, that's experiment number one out of the way. That was good. Um, so let's have, I'll tell you what, we'll start off with uh, Helen. This is for you. This is from uh, Heathrow Hub Hike, who would like to know if the Earth had less mass, would its gravity be less? How much compared to 9.81? So, a pla oh, John, John might have reappeared. You never I'm know. Sorry about that. I don't know what happened there, but I'm back now. I, I... <laughs> um, okay. So, to answer, the, so to answer the question about gravity, so the, the the gravity you feel at the surface of a planet depends on two things: the mass of the planet is just one of them, and the other one is the radius. So, it is a planet behaves as far as uh you know in that 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 sort of simplified way physicists like because it works in this case the maths works out that the gravity of a planet uh 
that the effect you feel is as if all of that mass is concentrated right at the centre, even though it obviously isn't. But the thing is, you are standing on the edge, which is somewhere away. And gravity, Newtonian gravity, uh, decreases uh, as as the radius squared. So as you get further and further away, the radius gets weaker and weaker and weaker. So if you have a small planet and you somehow squeeze a fixed amount of mass into that, then you feel, and you could stand on the surface, you'd feel super strong gravity. And then if you made the planet a bit bigger and spaced out the matter so it's about where we are, uh, and then you might get our gravity. And if you took the same amount of mass but made your planet bigger, then you'd be even further away. So you would experience lower gravity. So there's this trade-off between mass and radius that dictates the gravity you actually feel when you're walking about at the surface. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And John, John apologised. Well, he didn't need to. That was one of my favourite show and tells. That went <laughs> off in so many different directions and I loved it. Um, this is Hannah, this is for you. And this is uh, looking at the, the world of big data at, at the current time. And I would imagine you have had a lot of people asking you different questions about what we can mm -hmm. understand from what is going on during the lockdown. Jack would like to know, given we live in a world of big data and social distancing slash lockdown has been applied in many different ways in different countries. How do you think it's best to look at the knock on effects on social, environmental, economic and other changes that happened in a joined up cohesive way joined and I know it's a cohesive way and that's a very big Ooh. question in terms that of about method yeah okay all right so um i think that there's it's going to take a long time for a lot of this stuff to come out um in the wash i think that um as you say this is a, i mean essentially this is like a global problem um but every country is recording their data in a slightly different way um, and I think it's just a bit too early to get a, a sense of this other than sort of the immediate uh, right now and, uh, and, and you know, the, your immediate location. I think some of the stuff that's really nice, though, actually, that's just coming out is um, things like uh, Facebook for Good uh, are running a program where they're sharing data with scientists um, about how much people are moving around and what they're doing during the lockdown data is, uh, is being shared um, and we have like all of these different data sources that we can kind of combine together to get a sense of how people are actually behaving rather than just necessarily how they say that they're behaving um, and that I think has um, a couple of really good uh, good knock-on effects so one I mean I know that um, all the news coverage is um, is full of talking about this thing called the reproduction number um, but the thing is is that if you wait to see uh, if you make a change, if you if you enact some different uh, regime, in your, uh, if you enact some different policy in your country, and you wait for that um, for that effect to show up in the epidemiological data of deaths or cases, there's a really long lag there, right? Whereas I think if you look to see what happens in how people are uh, are walking around, you know, uh, from mobile phone data or from Facebook data or Google, Google mobility data, you just get this almost immediate sense of how different um, different policies are changing what's happening uh, in the country. And I think that's really nice. And I think also the other thing about that is that particularly Google and Facebook data is global. Um, so I think that's one of the ways that we will end up joining up the dots a little bit more between different countries and, and what's going on around the world. Should also uh, just mention, uh, have you yet seen uh, Benji's team uh, at Oxford have just done a, a huge report, uh, yeah. taking a huge amount of NHS information about COVID-19, uh, who's been affected, what we can currently understand about, uh, and uh, have, you, have you managed to see that yet? I have, yeah, yeah, 17 million patient records, it's absolutely extraordinary how quickly they've managed to do that, it's just, it's an, an, incredible, an, an incredible achievement, I think. Um, and it really does highlight some things that are really um, 
uh, alarming, I think. You know, in particular, one of the ones that's been in the news a lot recently is the the uh, the apparent ad- additional risk of uh, ethnicity, even when you account for sociodemographics, even when you account for comorbidities. Um, there are, you know, these real uh, patterns that are emerging. And I think that, you know, with, there's still there's still stuff to unpick there. So um, in America, there's uh, on some of that um, mobility data, the Facebook data and so on, that kind of data. Um, it does look like uh, key workers um, and uh, certainly people in uh, the lower socioeconomic groups tend to be moving around a lot more and are therefore a lot more at risk. And so if certain groups within this country are more likely to be certain kinds of key workers and therefore are more at risk, that's what we're seeing in the data, or it might be that it's something that's genuinely biological um, with different groups. It's just too, a bit too early to say. But yeah, that was an amazing study by the Godacre team. Really brilliant. Yeah, it turns out his alibi for every time that I asked him, would you come on our Sunday Science Q&A? And he said, I'm a bit busy. <laughs> what, that report is some solid alibi. John, for those of you who want to know about it, in fact, hopefully next week, I think possibly on Thursday, we'll be doing a show with Ben uh, just talking about what he and his team uh, have, have been doing and what they've learned so far. So with that, that'll be on Thursday. Um, this is from uh, David, John. He would like to know, when did we realise that there had to be more fundamental things than neutrons and protons? And why did we realise that? that? Um, well, I'm very bad on history, but I know why. <laughs> I think it was the early 70s anyway. Mainly, the main driver was an experiment in, in Stanford, SLAC, Stanford Linear Accelerator. Um, and it was very much like the uh, the famous Rutherford experiment, which um, people may have heard of, where you fire <coughs> um, Geiger and Muller and Rutherford fired he- uh, energetic particles, alpha particles, at gold, very thin gold foil, and some of them bounce back. And that's a clue that there's something very small and dense inside the gold foil. The gold foil is not just a smoothed out sheet. It's got little nuggets, basically the atomic nucleus inside it. So that's how the atomic nucleus was found. And the, the way we found that there was stuff inside the proton and the neutron was very similar. Scale up the energies by factors of more than a 1,000, um, get a, 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 linear, a beam of electrons rather than alpha particles from a, a linear accelerator at Stanford, fire them into a fixed target made of protons and neutrons. And if, if the protons and neutrons were just squishy blobs or, or were fundamental, if they're squishy blobs, you wouldn't see much bounce back if, because the electron would just punch right through them. If they're fundamental, you could predict the, the, um, the, the, the scattering angles you would see. And if they're neither of those, if they're some kind of particle made of even smaller fundamental particles, then you, you will see, as with Rutherford, you'll see some high-angle scattering of um, electrons off that. It's called deep inelastic scattering. You smash the proton to pieces, but it doesn't smash like a blob. It smashes like something with little hardcore nuggets in it. And those hard nugget things are quarks and gluons, actually, in the end as well. So that's how we knew. That's how we knew most directly. It was also kind of Murray Gell-Mann sort of wishful thinking as well, which um, is kind of the not direct evidence, but the, an explanatory power of quarks in that we saw lots of supposedly fundamental particles, and everyone hated that because you would hope that there were a small number of fundamental, I mean, we, we live in hope, particle physicists, right? We hope there's a small number of fundamental constituents that are understandable. And finding a new hadron every two weeks was great for PhD students, but it wasn't really helping simplify our picture of the world. And Murray Galman worked out that actually you could build just from the properties, not from looking inside them, but just from things like their charge and their angular momentum and stuff, you could build all these many, many hadrons from just three quarks. 
three kinds of quarks if you put them together in different combinations. A bit like the periodic table building up the elements from protons and neutrons and electrons. So that was very popular, and the big link then, it was actually Feynman, in fact, in the end, he pops up everywhere, um, made the connection between Gell-Mann's picture and this, the, these partons that we were seeing in the experiments at Stanford and showed that they could be the same thing and that actually the quarks are these, uh, the same quarks that gave Murray Gell-Mann's theory the explanatory power. Gell-Mann and Zweig, I should say, the two of them did it independently. Um, the same objects that helped explain the properties of the hadrons you could actually also see them if you had a powerful enough electron microscope, effectively, which is what they did at Stanford. So, and that, that was all kind of series of experiments and developments. Like most things, it didn't suddenly go bing overnight. It was very controversial. People didn't believe in quarks until some some good physicists didn't believe in quarks until the early eighties, even. But um, but over mainly in the seventies, I would say that the tide really turned, and people said, "No, these things are real." Brilliant. Thank you, John. Uh, quick one for you, Hannah. I think it's Rob. He would like to know, um, please settle dispute with my brother once and for all. Graphs are charts, but charts aren't graphs. True or false? <laughs> I want to know. Uh, that's, oh, that's I've never thought about it. Uh, <laughs> I think that's true. Only find out now. Well, we'll only them, find out Rob now. Or his brother <laughs> is now very happy and has possibly won two pounds. Uh, um, this is um, John. This is just before we go because we're, in a moment we're going to show something that Helen's been working on, uh, uh, which is going to be going out soon, um, which involves uh, gravity and the European Space Agency. So um, this is from Daryl John. He would like to know: Does the discovery of the Higgs boson bring us any closer to a quantum theory of gravity? Of gravity. Ooh. Ooh. Um, I mean, you might think so because the Higgs is responsible for the mass of fundamental particles, and gravity interacts with mass. And I would say. The answer is probably generically yes, because the more there probably is a quantum theory of gravity and the more we learn, we're sort of getting closer, but it's not a direct connection, no. So, sadly, I wish I wish there was, um, but... Um, that was the, such a Schrodinger's answer, John. You both said yes and no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. Well, at some level, it's a kind of Bayesian approach. Every time you learn something correct and new, it probably brings you closer to the truth and, and quantum gravity is truth. So, you know, no, okay. The answer is direct... It not not directly, it doesn't, right? Um, because um, gravity op is so much weaker than the kind of forces we can observe at the Large Hadron Collider and at the short distances that the Higgs exists, gravity is still very, very weak. If you really wanted to be sure of connecting to quantum gravity, you'd need a collider many, many times more powerful than the, than the Large... I mean, many orders of magnitude more powerful than the Large Hadron Collider. I think something that we could never conceive of building, actually, so we'll have to find another way of doing that. Um, so, not directly, but I, I am hesitant because there are potential connections and the, the, there's a big, wide theory, Wild West out there, where someone might find a clue in what we're learning about the Higgs as to what is going on with quantum gravity, but it's not it's not a mainstream direct connection, I would say. Brilliant. Thank you, John. And Helen, just to ask you, just before we have a look at this, this trailer, trailer of, uh, of, of the work that you did, was you, you and uh, Ginny Smith, was it as well, and Tim Peake. Um, so what did you go, we'll, we'll sh show the trailer in a few minutes, but what, what were you, uh, what did you go out and do? What were the experiments you were mucking around with then? Well, the idea is that zero gravity is a very useful place but at the moment it's quite it's quite hard to get there because we are still reliant on rockets and even if we get two-stage planes that take us up above the atmosphere into low earth orbit it's a lot of effort 
However, there is another way to effectively experience microgravity for short periods of time. And people have been doing this for decades. And it is one of those things that it sounds like someone dreamt up in a bar when they should have been doing something else. Because basically, they went, oh, well, you know, when you're in the lift and if the lift falls... Uh, and you fall at the same speed as the lift. Well, you don't experience gravity because effectively gravity is taking care of everything already. You know, you're already moving downwards, the lift's moving downwards. Um, it doesn't feel like there's any gravity there. And that is true from a physics point of view. So they went, well, what if, what if we flew a plane and got it up quite high and then just sort of pointed the nose downwards and let go? And it turns out that it works. <laughs> and not only, and so... It, not only did this did someone actually try this, but it has become pretty standard experimental stuff for a very small number of specialized planes. And so the European Space Agency asked us to go out to Bordeaux uh, to fly in one of these planes with them to experience microgravity and to look at all the reasons why you really do need to be in microgravity, um, but also go home to tea afterwards. Brilliant. Well, let's look have a little bit of, uh, of what you were up to in the days when we used to travel. Welcome to Bordeaux in France. We're here for the European Space Agency's 72nd parabolic flight campaign. I'm Dr. Helen Chersky. And I'm Ginny Smith. We're going to be looking at some of the scientific experiments going on in this plane here. Now, I'm going to stay as part of the ground crew, which I'm quite happy about, but Helen, you're actually going to be going up there and experiencing zero-g. The great thing about the range of experiments you can do up here is you can imagine yourself in so many places in the galaxy and the solar system and even a little bit of science in this environment is really useful just because it's so different. See that's a perfect, almost perfect parabola for us and we're just monitoring so just, the acceleration in one direction. Keeping it, so oh, it's just let it go. So you could actually print things out of Mars. That, that is a bit of the idea wow. that you just take the powder or the, the, the sand you find on the planet's surface, put it in the printer and then you can make, I don't know, uh, bricks for your house. Yeah. I love this little box on the top here. So imagine being on the beach on another planet and we can imagine here, look at the sand just moving around. Imagine stepping on a beach on another planet, on an exoplanet. But the problem is that we have only irregular particles and there is no universal rules, universal physical law for the light scattered by irregular particles. Yeah, you can you can do a thousand tests but the next morning in the plane and it will be different. Isn't experimental <laughs> science great? <laughs> yes, perfect. I will be extremely embarrassed if I if I am sick. Very, very much so. It's really interesting being able to track Helen's flight on the screen here and see exactly where she is. And there's an inhibition and that takes element longer. as well. When that the arrow longer. goes in one direction, then you have to go in the other direction. You've exactly. got to inhibit takes, the instinct yeah. to... Yeah, it's amazing how capable our brain is of being able to flip orientation very quickly. Well, this is the free-floating area, and this is the only place in the plane where we're allowed to free-float. It's just occurred to me it should be called a free-floating volume, shouldn't it? But yes. anyway, <laughs> this is the only place you're allowed to free-float. Um, the mathematicians will have a word <laughs> Sorry. With you.
Hello, welcome back. Um, so those are some of the things that we try and do uh, well throughout the year. Uh, if any of you have looked around the Cosmic Shambles uh, channel, you see there's loads of things. We've done hundreds of, uh, of different podcasts and short films. And I mean, I think we've interviewed over 500 scientists. We've got a huge archive as well, which we're trying to get out there as well. Uh, we've young scientists, scientists who uh, just talking about, you know, the, the drive of their career, explaining many different ideas. So uh, I hopefully uh, you will uh, enjoy that. And that all comes from our patreon fund as well as i said we basically put everything we make we try and just to, to keep any money we make we just keep trying to put it back to make stuff that's what we want to do so hopefully you can support us via our patreon and uh also there's a tip jar at the bottom as well that's for artists and art centers to help support them and don't forget as well as i mentioned before next sunday helen and i and uh steve Baxter as well with uh, lem c sam and british cpan and loads of others uh we're going to be doing a uh, a show uh, not from the albert hall that would have been from the albert hall we're going to be creating the albert hall in each one of our uh, small rooms so let's go uh now have uh, a question for hannah there was uh now this is um oh sorry we've done that one that's the just we've had a lot of it we've had two different questions about graphs and then there's a subsidiary question which i think is very as well which is how uh, do we improve education for people to understand how statistics are represented and oh yeah that is and oh, I think yeah, that is, that's, you know, and you can broaden yeah. out that because I think it's what I think most of us, uh, when we are faced with statistics, we are our heads go swimming and we very often make the leap to what we would like to presume about the world and we don't analyse them. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. I think especially now, actually, I had a, a big um, uh, conversation about this with Brady Haran, who runs the Number Five channel. He's a big YouTuber. Um, particularly about logarithmic axes in uh, in the charts that we're seeing now in papers, and the thing is, is that like logarithmic axes is normally like a no go, right? Like you don't you don't share logarithmic axes with the public. They they you know they it complicates things. They much prefer it when um, <clears throat> you know numbers go up in tens or hundreds and not and not both at the same time. Um, and uh, my argument was that I think actually this is a really positive step. I think that people are becoming more comfortable just by by virtue of seeing these graphs more often. Um, and his was that actually people still don't understand them. They're just um, they're they're assuming that it's like a much you get a much gentler slope um, of these epidemic curves on logarithmic axes than you would on linear ones. Um, but I think you're right that like presenting information is just a really really tricky thing. Because it's uh, it's one thing reading a graph as a professional mathematician or scientist, and quite another if you're a member of the public. The thing that I try and do when I do talks is um, is uh, try and make it into a story. So don't just show the whole thing at once. Each section uh, as you go along, and 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 try and layer it up rather than just dump the whole thing at once. John, you want to say something? Yeah, I just I was thinking about um, when we discovered the Higgs boson because it highlighted my career as a physicist. But one of the most important things, and I'm a hopeless optimist probably here, but one of the things I really liked about that whole saga, because it was a story that went on for two or three years in the end with us, is it there, is it not, what's the evidence, three sigma, five sigma, blah, blah, blah. I really enjoyed being interviewed and talking to people about our sense of uncertainty and are you sure and no we'll never be sure we're just you know this is how, how mm. the evidence is now we are sure now you know but still i could put a number on the probability that we're wrong um as as you know it, it's that's the way this goes and i i hoped at the time that it was and thought it was probably more important that we were 
educating people about the nature of scientific uncertainty and statistics than about the origin of mass and the Higgs boson, ideally doing both. Um, I suspect we probably did neither in the end, sadly, but it was, it was at least an opportunity to have discussions about uncertainty and knowledge and scientific evidence in an unthreatening environment, as opposed to the one we're in now, of course, which is much more threatening. Can I check in as well? Sorry. No. I think people know about the, like Sigma now more than they did before the Higgs boson thing, though, right? I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> Can I, I think there's a really important point, which is getting better and better with time, which is I think a lot of this is about visualisation. And mm. we have seen in some countries, I mean, New I mean, New Zealand is an example, right at the beginning, they had really, really good and simple uh, visual explanations of what these things meant. And we we haven't seen the same here, but we saw a lot of those got shared. And I think that one of the things that graphics allows now is to share um, really good visualizations and the sense of scale. You know, there are, it's nice to see actually planetariums now being used, not just for looking at representations of the stars, which is great, but for these shows where you zoom in and zoom out on the scales, where you zoom into the cell as well as zooming out to the universe. And I think that those tools are critical. And that's a tool we have now that we didn't have in the past. Um, and I, th I so I'm optimistic about those tools when they're used well and when they're done properly and they're not misleading, which is obviously the hard bit. Mm. Well, that's good. While we're on a level of optimism, let's move on to a question about rainbows. Um, this is from Paul, who's from the Wirral. Thank you, Paul. You send questions every week, and I know you've been uh, watching a lot of these. Uh, Paul was on a walk with his five-year-old, and they saw a really bright rainbow, but it was on a dry blue sky day, and they couldn't see a drop of rain. And his five-year-old said, but it hasn't rained. And Paul couldn't explain what was going on. So... What do you think was going on? Helen, I, I think I'm going to go to you first. Yeah, so it, so is, it, is, per it, is, it is one of the things that um, when it rains in the sky, that rain doesn't always reach the earth. <laughs> that's, that, that's thing number one to know. So, so normally when you see a rainbow, it's because there's been um, there's big enough droplets of water that the light can refract through the water in the way that produces the rainbow. But it's possible. So I, it depends on the situation of the clear blue sky a little bit. There's, there's quite a lot of things the sky can do. So it's possible that there was a cloud higher up uh, that generated some rain that fell through a, through a space that looked like it was blue and then re-evaporated. That could have caused a bit of a rainbow. If it was really high up, it's possible it could have been ice crystals from much higher up, uh, actually making something that may or may not have been a rainbow. So when you get a series of colours like that, um, going through the colours of the rainbow, it doesn't always have to be an actual rainbow that generates it. There are other phenomena in the sky that can, sun dogs uh, and halos and all kinds of things that can generate that kind of effect without being an actual rainbow. And quite a lot of them require ice crystals. And so an ice crystal doesn't look like a you know a plume of them doesn't necessarily look like a cloud although quite a lot of clouds have got a lot of ice in them so there's quite a lot of things going on in the sky that can generate a range of colors but it may not have been an actual rainbow it could have been one of these other things so so it's a bit hard to tell without knowing a little bit more isn't there something with ice crystals and clouds that also leads to um, uh, illusions of uh, ufos I'm so. I'm Probably. trying to remember. We. I think we. People see UFOs everywhere. Like it's. It's one of those things. They that are everywhere. You're right. <laughs> and last, a scientist telling the truth. They're all over the place. Actually, know. I've got a picture. I tell you what. I'm just going to nip into the hallway. I've got a thing on the wall. I'm going to bring it. But it's got. You talk to the others for a bit, and I'll yeah, show you this what, thing. I'll ask Hannah a question, and John, and then you bring out whatever you've got in the hallway. Right. Uh, this is uh, <laughs> um, Hannah. This is from Marcus, and he would like to know: Is there such a thing as a genuinely unsolvable mathematical problem? And I suppose that will be thinking of things like you know, famously. Fermat's last last theorem was, you know, for a long time uh, that 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 great moment where Wiles finally managed it. But so that idea of an unsolvable mathematical theory or mathematical idea. theory or idea. 
Yeah, totally. Um, so this stuff is, is, this is all like the pure mathematicians love this stuff. Um, and uh, which is not, I would say, my total area of expertise. But um, yeah, I mean, there are this, these ideas that, uh, you know, if you try and boil ideas down to their, you know, their, their, their absolute core, there will always be some things that you cannot know. There will always be some theorems that are unprovable. Um, and yet uh, from the outset, you can't tell which ones are provable and which ones aren't. So it is absolutely possible that Fermat's last theorem was not provable. It's absolutely possible that the millennium maths prizes, um, you know, are actually unsolvable. Uh, and but we just don't know. We just don't know until you until you solve it. You don't know wh which uh, which particular camp it sits in. And for which a lot of people, I know that mathematics frustration, right? Well, I can imagine right. because, you know, there, there, are, there are some people who were really, you know, incredibly the, the, the focus of their work. And, of course, we know of people who, who were, it appears, driven mad in, in time trying to understand a single problem. So I presume more often than not, like some kind of cult, very often you're too far in it and you can't then reverse out of it for some people. One, by, by the time you think it appears to be unsolvable, but I've, I've spent three years on it now. This is sunk cost well, here. It, right? I know, that's it. I mean, you, I mean, you hear the Andrew Wilde story of someone locking themselves away for seven years and then the glory moment of us having solved it and then, you know, the despair of the problem and then the glory again of having solved it. I mean, those are the stories that you hear. What you don't hear are the stories of people who spent, dedicated their entire lives to a single problem and who were unable to, to, to find a solution. I mean, there's sort of, there is some very kind of romantic tragedy to that. Okay. Isn't it? Um, oh, it's just to deal with Gödel's theorem as well, right? There yeah. are actually some statements yeah. that are neither true nor false, so there's no way you can prove exactly. And that's why Bertrand Russell moved on to philosophy. Um, <laughs> that's this... just Barbara Seville. It's not that hard. <laughs> uh, Robin, I've got my picture. Do you want to see the... Right, only oh. if it's been done by extraterrestrials that you've met. This has been a big <laughs> promise from okay, you. Okay, so I'll show you something, something though. So here's... Oh, I'm going to have to like move my Skype screen so I can see what I'm looking at. Sorry. Okay, so this is we looking can see at... It looking out at ice at the North Pole, sunset or nearly sunset because it was 24 hour daylight. Now here, these two things are either side, these are sun dogs. And so they look like little rainbows, but they're caused by ice crystals. Now that your UFO thing, here's your UFO thing. Those were really there. These radiating lines from the sun, they were not really there. They are caused by a camera lens. So that this is a photograph of the what a camera lens look, does when it looks at the sun. This is not real. But it, it's real on the photograph, and those are were actually real and were really there. But they are—they're not. They, they, those are the colours of the rainbow. But they are—it's for—they're ice crystals. In this case, it's ice crystals. They're twenty-two degrees off the sun, and that's a sun dog. Yeah, the sun dog. You're right. That is exactly what it, it. And it's fascinating. That's of course the thing about UFOs is very often there are things which are uh, unidentified. It's just that. Well, now we're going to get the people who think. To, now we're going to get the people who think they've seen the sun cats, right? That's oh, yeah, the uh, um, sun cats was very unpopular this Christmas. Um, this is uh, John. What powers the proton from Jeremy? That's what he'd like to know. Not the proton from Jeremy. Sorry, the, it's not that Jeremy's produced a particular proton. I meant the question comes from Jeremy. What powers the proton? What powers it? What is the power that so, so what powers the proton? It is stable, it doesn't decay, yet it quarks are popping in and out of existence and recombining from somewhere. What is the source that creates that? Right. It's the binding energy of the quarks inside. So it's a strong nuclear force, which is one of the fundamental forces of nature, which is carried by gluons. And they are constraining the um the quarks to be inside the proton so that the the energy of a free quark is much, much less than the energy of a, of a three quarks bound inside the proton. So 
that's um, they're kind of constructed. So the short answer is the strong nuclear force. Um, but you can, and there's a huge amount of available energy in principle then because of that binding energy. You saved if you imagine three quarks. Imagine that you bring them together to make a proton. You you kind of release a lot of energy doing that, and some of that energy is locked into the binding energy of the proton. And if you think about the uncertainty principle, that you cannot know both exactly where something is and how fast it's moving at the same time and that's kind of a, a blurry thing so if you know roughly where it is you can only roughly know how fast it's moving so if you know a quark is inside the proton then you can't quite know how fast it has some motion due to it. So the, the fact that you've localized it in space means you've delocalized it in speed so it has a spread of speeds so there's a kinetic energy that you can think of the quarks as bouncing off the walls of the proton if you like and it's that that binding energy of the, of the strong interaction that's doing it. Can I just ask, why is it quark? Because it's Murray it's, Murray it, comes it comes from quark for Mr. Mark, doesn't it, from Finnegan's Wake. It's it not does, quark yes. for Mr. Mark. So why why did the physicists decide in their obstreperous way to show up arts graduates who always call them quarks? Well, I think it was actually Gell-Mann did it himself. It's, it seems fairly typical. I mean, he, he's, he laid down how that you pronounce it quark, and then I think he post probably post-fitted it to to um to the literature um so to so so i think i think you just like the sound of the word quark and then and then found a literary reference where it appeared as quark but i i I'm, certainly quark is is not it, it quark, is def- quark is definitely the pronunciation um so and also it's james joyce right is, is yeah that, yeah so who said he never used to rhyme anything anyway did he i mean he who knows how james joyce pronounced it just because it rhymed, he had it with Mark. It doesn't mean it wasn't quark in his head. Well, trying to understand Finnegan's Wake is the one thing that may well be harder to understand than uh, quantum cosmology. So uh, it often drives me back to physics trying to understand that. We also, hopefully, you guys can hang around for. Uh, we've I've got some more questions. Don't worry if you do have to disappear. But we're going to take uh, quickly move over to um, a friend of mine who is an author and who writes uh, really wonderful children's books uh, with, in fact, uh, her son, all about um, various different historical ideas and most recently uh, scientific idea. Um, so we are joined by Kate Cunningham. I hope. Hello, Kate. Maybe we're not joined by Kate Cunningham. <laughs> I blame you for this, John. Whatever you, when you were fiddling around, sucking out our life energy with some kind of machine you'd made. So we'll hang around for Kate. We will. We'll come back to Kate. I'll find out when when she's there. Don't worry. We are not short of questions. Ah, oh, now this is definitely when I go Helen, Hannah, or uh, John. When it starts off, what is it about Weetabix, raisin wheat, etc., that makes remnants develop such an adhesive and mechanical strength when they dry into the bowl? I go not John, not Hannah, definitely Helen. You know, I used to be the environment officer for my university years and years ago. And one day they found a wheelie bin and they knew I was, I was looking, looking for bins to collect recycling. recycling. And, one, and of one of the porters came and they wheeled the bin and we saw we so we found this wheelie bin in a pond and we thought of you. So this has followed me throughout life. Anyway, Weetabix. So um it's it's to, to, I think it's the cellulose thing as well. So I, I don't know exactly the, the molecular makeup of Weetabix, but it's a bit like damp paper strands of cellulose that um, have hydrogen bonds in between them. Uh, And when you add water, it gets in between the fibres and separates them out. Um, But if you, as it dries out, as the water gets sucked out, all those fibres come back together and they join onto each other. They haven't got water to link onto, but they want to link onto each other. And so it's basically a bit like papier-mâché. So, um, yeah, I think that is the Weetabix solution. 
thank you very much that was incredible much briefer than some of the stuff you've done before john with all that physics turns out serial based questions are much uh, that now this one this is is for you hannah someone uh who is, has read your book hello world and would like to know what originally drove you to try and analyze the world in the way that you do in terms of statistically Ooh. and mathematically being mathematically oh great question um okay so the real truth is that it was all a bit of a fluke so i actually uh what i desperately wanted to be was um i wanted to be i wanted to work in formula one i wanted to be an aerodynamicist formula one and so i did my phd in fluid dynamics and uh, and that was uh, that was that was it. I was ready. I was off to go to Formula One. Managed to make it. I got to Formula One, and I hated every minute of it. <laughs> so um, I desperately looked for a, a way to get back. And um, this postdoc just happened to come up that was using data to analyse human behaviour in the department that I, uh, I'm, I'm still in now. Um, and as soon as I got there, I was like, oh, okay. And I, we got in at the. I think I got in at the right moment as well. No, obviously, um, I think you can still get in now, but it was 2010. So, you know, iPhones were still quite new. Um, all of this data was very new. It was kind of a new and emerging field. And so, um, yeah, we had like freedom to do anything that we wanted, really. Uh, it was pre-GDPR GDPR as well, right? So we really did have freedom to do anything we wanted. Um, whereas in fluid dynamics, <laughs> in fluid dynamics, it's 100 years old, you know, there's uh, there's very little room for manoeuvre, whereas this was like open planes of, of, of potential research, which is really nice. Brilliant. So, uh, and I would highly recommend, by the way, uh, Hello World, and very good lecture as well. I saw when you did QED Con, what was it? Uh, yeah, cool. year, the, and I also recommend Helen's book, which is Storm in a Teacup. And I think your, John, was your most recent book, Map of the Invisible? Yes, it was. Right. So, Ma Map of the Invisible, I'd recommend all of those. Um, and now we're going to go over to uh, another author and uh, let's find out the level of suspense. Kate Cunningham, hello. Suspense, Kate Cunningham, hello. Hmm. Who's hmm. the most enigmatic the most guest we've had on yet? We've had Every time Trent says, oh, I've got her, no, disappears again. Now, I think this means Trent sent me a quick message saying, Trent, by the way, if you don't know, produces these shows. Um, and uh, I shouldn't have said it then. I shouldn't have said, I very often forget to say that Trent produced these shows. But now we've had an error for some reason, some Freudian bit of my brain. <laughs> I, I wasn't doing it to, uh, to to pass the buck. Trent can see, uh, Kate. That's the message that I just got on screen okay. there. But, but we can't. So that is an issue, Trent. Um, whatever you can see, if only we could see all the things that you keep in your mind. Uh, uh, so, let's just let's see. Just see. Got... Oh, oh, now we've got now something, else. something else. No, don't do that, Trent. That doesn't help at all. Um, <laughs> hopefully we'll come back to Kate before the end of the show. What we might do is we might do it right at the end of the show and, and everyone else. Uh, so this, I think, is the question that uh, Trent wanted me to ask. And it's a long question, so get ready for this. This is from Gary Eaton, right? I've not read it before, so let's see how my pronunciation comes out on this. I've always found it difficult to conceptualise what it means that a particle has a frequency. I get the waves have a frequency, how often a wave peaks, but I don't understand in layman's terms what the frequency of a particle actually means, that light a particle, that behave like waves. Is that to mean that light is a constant stream of particles moving in a wave formation? Photon has energy but no mass. Surely if it has energy, it has mass. E equals mc squared. Relative mass confuses me further. I've seen it explained like this. Yes, they have mass, but it's negligible. But technically, they don't have it because it's relative. Surely, yes, no, the other way round. Right. So, John. Right, there we go. <laughs> that, thrown, now, now that, is, that idea of something having mass and energy is a very interesting, you know, when, as non-physicists, when you first come across some of the particles that we would not come across unless we're reading popular physics books, yeah, there are a lot of moments of, of counter-instinctual kind of sensation that goes on. Right. 
So there, there are, but before we get to that one, just the last thing he said about photons and mass. Throw that—that's the wrong explanation he's been given there. So we should correct that immediately. Photons have zero mass. The only useful use of the word mass for mass is is the energy that a particle has when it's not moving. Okay. So throw away the idea of relativistic mass. It's a stupid idea. No one teaches it anymore, and no one has done for a long time. The mass, the rest, the the rest mass of a particle is the only meaningful thing, and it's what particles have. It's the energy a particle has when it's not moving. A photon never stops, so it has no rest mass. It's absolutely zero. It's not small. It's zero as far as we know. So that that's that one. The bit, yes, the much more much more tricky is this business about particles and waves. And in fact, the the real answer to that is that I also don't have a picture myself, particularly of what's going on. The trouble is we think in classical analogies. So when we think we think of waves, so you know, sea waves or sound waves, a classical analogy from things from everyday life. And particles are also snooker balls or sand grains or something. They're just they're something classical we get a grip on. And quantum particles are neither of those things. They sometimes behave like one. They sometimes they behave like the other. To really fully describe their behavior, you need quantum field theory. And while I can do quantum field theory at some level, it's not something I have an intuitive picture of. And I think at some level we just have to accept that that our analogies that we use to try and understand things, understand we'll things, will at some level break down, and we have to hand over to the mathematicians at that point, I guess. <laughs> so you can let Hannah in now if you like. But that, that's what we, in the end, the only way of, of fully describing the behavior of these objects is by the mathematical rules we've worked out by looking at their behavior in experiments. And sometimes they behave like particles, sometimes they behave like waves, but the true answer is they're neither. They're, a quantum, they're an excitation in a quantum field which has both energy and a wavelength associated with it. And if it's a massive excitation, it has a rest mass as well, which a photon does not. Brilliant. Thank you, John. This is very uh, got there. We will try and questions keep coming in right at the end. Um, this is from John. Uh, Hannah, hello. We've heard a lot about mathematical modelling and prediction models of infectious diseases lately. Some seem to be he held up as better than others. And I was wondering what mathematical differences there are in determining determining in something is a good model prediction compared to one that isn't beyond the obvious answer of what data you feed into it. So, I mean, this is Ooh. a problem, is it? Mathematical modelling, you, you often hear it uh, in terms of, you know, with climate change and things like that people will just they're, they're almost like that moment from Monty Python the Holy Grail it's only a model you know there's a seems to be a misunderstanding to some extent even what, what a model is and, and, and what it's actually doing yeah I mean I, uh, the nice explanation of, of what a model is uh, that I like is that it's sort of like if you're at a lake and someone's doing a painting and they're kind of uh, trying to capture the essence of the lake uh, on, on the canvas. Essentially, it's the same thing. It's just rather than using paint and paintbrushes, you're using mathematical equations. You're not capturing everything that's there. It's not the same as living through it. It's not the you there, there are inevitably some things that you have to leave behind. Um, and so really that means there's a really wonderful quote a very famous quote by george e box where he says all models are wrong some are useful and i think that that is the most important thing to remember in this and you can't it's very hard to uh, avoid going down one uh, avenue or the other 
don't think of these things as crystal balls that tell you what the future is because they're not that's not what they're supposed to be um they're supposed to give you an indication of the likely futures ahead of us but simultaneously don't dismiss them as junk because in many situations and particularly over the last few months really they're the only thing that we have to stop looking ahead to our future blind um and i think that you just need to find somewhere in the middle where you you use them to give you advice but don't think of them as absolute facts because they're just not that is the problem, though, where isn't it? We where see we how see science, how science works, compares, works compared to how journalism works, because very mm -hmm. often for the columnists, what they want is is a definite. It doesn't matter that they will then have a totally different definite the next day. Mm -hmm. And that still seems to me to be an issue in terms of trying to communicate that as much to, to the public. As you just said, this is this is useful. It means that you are not going forward blind. And yet people may well just take the first part of that statement. All models are wrong. That's all they need to write their column. Yeah. I know, I totally agree. I think especially some of the stuff around the criticism of the Imperial model since they released their code um, a few days ago and people have been through it. You know, there have been complaints about the fact that you run this model more than once and you don't get the same result. And it's like, well, bloody course you don't get the same result. It's a stochastic model. Like, just a real kind of lack of understanding. of uh, thinking, uh, of, thinking of this as like, well, this has to be the absolute truth and then not finding the absolute truth in it. I think it's not just the journalists, though. I think it's politicians, too. And I think that mm. one of the most concerning things that I've seen in the last few weeks is politicians saying oh it's the science that told us what to do and it's like no that isn't what science does and it's not what science is for science can give you evidence and can illuminate the relative risks of paths ahead but it's for the politicians to choose which direction to go in Brilliant. Thank you. This is uh, we'll just do the question now. Sorry, by the way, we haven't done everyone's questions. Some of them we will do next week at the Albert Hall show because we've got some good questions uh, on on water and stuff that will fit in very much to the kind of sea shambles show. We also we've got well, we've got a load of other questions that we would also then do uh, the week after as well. We'll be back with the normal Sunday uh, science Q and A in two weeks' time. Uh, this is from now. I'm not sure who it's from, but it is uh, originally their son, who's eight years old, asked this person, "Why do things appear smaller the further away?" They they are now who do we start with on that john ha. <laughs> um i think that the way i think about this is um your eyes are seeing a certain angle they're not really seeing distances so your eyes see like 150 degrees looking out ahead of you maybe 180 with your peripheral vision and that has to be divided up amongst all the objects that are in your field of view. So if, if you think of a, a things close up, your hand close to your face can take up all your field of view. If your hand is further away, it's got to share that field of view with lots of other objects. So the angle, it, the share of the angle it has is smaller. So, it, so you basically your field of view remains constant as a certain angle. And the further things are away, the more of them you have to squeeze into that angle. So they have to shrink. I mean, the short answer would be perspective, but I'm trying to describe perspective, I think. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that's the lovely thing, isn't it? Some of the, the simple... It, it's like, I, I still find it bamboozling, the mirror back to front but not upside yeah, down and it, and it feels as if that should be the most natural thing and of course it's back to front but not upside down but as everything the more you think about it the more you go but why and that's where that little kind of <laughs> ache in your brain kicks in and that's yeah. part of the beauty of it i love questions like that yes i, I actually yes. read i, I actually mm. read that one on twitter i think and i enjoyed thinking how i'd answer it i still <laughs> think i made a bit of a mess of it but i like it anyway. <laughs> Helen, would you like to add anything there on perspective? Well, it, I mean, it's sort of the version of what John said is that we look outwards effectively in a cone. And so it's if you imagine a, uh, 
a party hat and you're blowing through the pointy bit of the party hat and it's it's spreading out away from you. Um, if it's a small party hat, a small object can fill quite a lot of the circle. But if it's a big party hat, a small object can only fill a tiny bit. And so your brain can seize it as much smaller because, like John said, it's basically seeing fractions of the entire field of view, not measurements. And, and of course, our brains are so good at interpreting things that we think we are seeing measurements and we know how big things are. And actually, we don't. Our brains are doing this amazing job of putting together lots of different lines of evidence. It's not just what we see. Um, it's also a stereo vision. That's, you know, we that helps us out to judge how far away something is to work out how big it is. And there's all kinds of other tricks as well. So um, it, it's, it is mostly perspective, but it's also that our brains are doing all these clever things so much all the time that we think we know more than we actually do. And actually, our brains are filling in a lot of the gaps for us. I think that's some of the most interesting research in terms of about perception is balance between the two there's so much great stuff out there and, and in this century in particular there's been such great research can i just check by the way helen uh you started with champagne you ended with party hats are you hinting it's your birthday soon or something i wanted to check whether there was something some it's not my birthday but i'm just working out if it might be nearly my half birthday but i think i've passed that as well it might be my imyanini so, so um you know in many countries they don't uh, have birthdays they have names days and apparently, in, if you are into the Catholic Church, there have been some St. Helens. And I think there might be a St. Helens Day sometime around now. So maybe I should have a party. Somewhere I think you definitely um, we get a sense yeah. want to have a party there. Um, Hannah, can I find out, are you um, uh, curious cases of, uh, of Rutherford and Fry? Uh, is that going out at the moment on Radio 4? It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not. Because uh, my co-host, Adam Rutherford uh almost died from coronavirus so um he's but he's much better now he's back on the um back on mend um and so we are just starting up now probably be back on air in june yeah i made a terror i, I talked about this last week we had adam on last week and you know when you send a jokey text mm. and text well at least your final book sold well uh and then you know when someone gets more and more ill and then you go it was just a joke it was a joke um i just wanted to show you that i have all oh, the humanity God. many of the physicists out there as well john you see that that's what working with brian cox has done for me um john did, as we did mentioned you follow it up did you follow up just so that it wouldn't it wouldn't end up being the I, last text that you I sent, sent him more get well messages than on average i normally sell to pe uh, send to people yeah that is true um <laughs> John, you have, uh, uh, the, 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 I'm trying to remember now, that before Map of the Invisible, there was a fantastic book you did all about, basically, your work at the Large Hadron Collider. Yeah, uh, it's, um, it's, basically, it's basically a memoir of what it was like to discover the Higgs, yeah. I've got the title. Smashing Physics, of course. Yes, that that is and, great. Uh, I'm back next week with Helen. Uh, as we said, that's going to. Th I think we start seven. It might be seven thirty. Uh, it is pretty much. It's the show we were going to do at the Albert Hall, but it's seven o'clock. Uh, the show we were going to do at the Albert Hall, and it's all the people involved and more people involved. You know, that's why we got Colby on because we wouldn't normally necessarily be able to fly over someone who's normally in the uh, Marvel Avengers franchise. Uh, but she also has an interest in ocean. She uh, does a lot of work for uh, the ocean charity Oceana as well. So she's going to be joining us. 
Brits and uh, British Sea Power. Lots of basically, we've got everyone. I think pretty much who was going to be on, and we've got some extra bonus guests as well. Chris Hadfield, uh, for instance, he's going to be joining us. As I mentioned before, um, and also mentioned because Steve Backshaw is going to be with us. Your questions, your questions about the things that live in the ocean, the, the strange, the peculiar, the sometimes imagined things, whatever you would like. If you would uh, send those questions to us for Steve Backshaw next week, that would be great. A reminder again, uh, Patreon, please do go and support us for our Patreon and join our YouTube channel. And there's a tip jar at the bottom if you can't be bothered uh, to do that. And also, don't worry if you don't have you you don't want to do any of those things. Well, you can't do any of those things. We try as much as possible to make sure that almost everything we do is free access, and then we rely on hopefully some of those people who are able to contribute to keep this free access for as long as possible. Um, before I go to Kate Cunningham, uh, I'll also mention tomorrow at ten thirty in the morning with Josie Long. We're joined by Phil Jupiter's uh, Tuesday. My friend Rebecca Payton. Uh, we're going to be doing a special about um, looking at depression and anxiety and uh, so that's going to be a discussion of that at 10.30 on Tuesday and on Wednesday we have one of my favourite writers and comedians uh, and uh, if, if, you, if you're Australian you will know him very well, Sean McAuliffe who is an absolute genius uh, he should be internationally known, hopefully some of you do know his work, absolutely brilliant, he's with us on Wednesday, so thank you very much Helen, Hannah and John and now for the final time I say hello Kate Say Cunningham, hello Kate hello. Cunningham, hi hello. Hi, Kate. I can't see it, but this is you've created a wonderful right. level of events. Um, yes. thank you so I, I much. I wanted to really make an entrance. <laughs> it was, it was, it was proper, it was panto style. It was like, you know, this is the th and you did it the rule of three. Oh, oh, first time, no, second time, nearly, but no, third one. Ah, here she is. Um, so first of all, tell me, I mean, the, the this. The, the, the only one of the books I've seen is the wonderful one with the space race, the beautiful uh, book, which is there, um, A Dog's Adventure and Journey into Understanding the Space Race. What, where did the ideas for these books come from? Oh, well, they all came from the idea that when you do topics in school, there's lots of fabulous fact books that you can dip into. Um, but I wanted, uh, as a teacher, I wanted a story that I could tell. So when we got to the end of the day, we could tell a story and it would still give lots of information and share all the actual bits of information. But in that method, you know, sort of t sharing a story of it. So. so it was very much that it was you, you as a teacher were going, hang on a minute. These are the books which don't seem to be because there are. Yeah. You know, it, it, I, I am I, I am encouraged by seeing, and for slightly older children, I think Vlad is aimed at, you know, there are, Christopher Edge is a wonderful author of, of, of books about scientific ideas, but really that's for slightly older kids. And I, and I do think some of the ideas that you're looking at are ones that should be for younger children. I think a lot of, of both scientific and historical ideas are sometimes kept away from kids for too long. And, and uh, you know, they, there they are with the, the, the mind and the plasticity of the brain. And sometimes we're not sharing some of the, the uh, some of these exciting ideas. Yes, and I just think we get into a habit. I think publishers have certain books that they produce and we get into habit of the type of books we have. Um, but, you know, the teach, when the teacher teaches a topic, they'll, the first thing they'll do is grab every book they can. And it was what, there was definitely a gap for me. I wanted a story. But I've got a very exciting link to tell you about the story that I wanted to talk about. Well, you wanted to, then, now this is, um, the, was Florence Nightingale the first, the first in the Vlad series? Um, she was the third, actually. Right. So there's Great Fire, First World War, then there was the Florence, and we're up to number four now. So she was number three. Um, but the exciting link is that you've been talking a lot about data, and, and 
what I do when I go into schools, which obviously I can't do at the moment, I can't go into schools and tell them all about this, is um, I normally try and give them a lot of the backstory because I get kind of a bit obsessed with all the actual facts and the history and the information. And there's only so much you can fit into a thousand words. You, you know, a thousand words is really the outside of a picture book. You're pushing it a little bit with that. So there's a load of information to give. So the first thing I want to mention is this is really appropriate because Tuesday is International Nurses Day, which the reason for that is because it's Florence Nightingale's date of birth. It's 200 years. It's her bicentenary. But this is the exciting link. One of the things that didn't make it into the book is that she was um, one of the first people to really take a lot of the data and information and put it into these kind of formats. So she created this graph. And that then, when you, I'll explain it. It's very easy to work out. This is a mortality rate. The red ones are the number of people who died from wounds. And this is in the Crimea. So you'd sort of expect it to be quite a high rate. The blue is the number of soldiers that died from um, disease. So in the hospital, you can see, it's quite clear to see that actually the vast number of the um, soldiers were dying from the disease, not from wounds. And so she, she was a, a pioneer. This, this was... Yeah, it really, fits really nicely with what you were talking about earlier. Yeah, it's she such was a difficult thing, isn't it, isn't it, in terms of with the way that someone's story gets slimmed down. So in the end, everyone's brought up and they know about, oh, there was a lady and she had a light and she used to shine her light. And you go, well, actually, you know, the statistics and understanding, get, getting a, a, an understanding of mortality and how to then. I mean, it's been such a battle in the, in, in, in the medical world and, and it continues yeah. to be so in terms of getting clear information. Mm. She was actually the first woman to be... Um, um, a fellow of the Royal Statistical Society. So after she came back and she did lots of research and she did lots of reports, and then she um, she was invited to join the Royal Statistical Society based on all of that information that she'd pulled together and these graphs that she'd made. So um, that was that was one really key bit that I often go into schools and talk about that's behind the book. Um, but it was the start of evidence-based medical practice so it was it was a time when people were beginning to um to really use that she'd say has this been tried and what was the result she was very keen on on looking at those results and then exactly as you were saying earlier pulling apart whether that had been useful or not and then reinventing it if necessary and moving on so when you were writing the book, I mean, it must be very hard because you are, of course, because it's a, it's a lovely picture book. It's a very beautiful thing. Working out what remains to keep the story, to make sure that also you have, as, as you know, also with Space Race as well, you have these beautiful hooks in the story where you know that, that you know, there is a moment for inquisitiveness and there is a journey to continue. It's not just you close the book and that's it done. You know, how, how do you work that out? I have to be really strict with myself and cut out a lot of stuff. And I cheat. I, I put a fact file at the end. where I try and sneak in as many of the little bits of information that I haven't actually managed to put into the story itself. But yes, it becomes it becomes really difficult to remove bits that you have to remove. So actually in the Florence book, a large part of it is, is uh, the viewpoint of her um, her tortoise who's walking up and down the ward and having a look at what's going on because she genuinely had a, a pet tortoise that wandered the wards of Scutari Hospital 
Um, Shell is now sitting in the Florence Nightingale Museum. It's one of their objects there. Um, it, you have to just be incredibly strict yourself and remind yourself you're telling a story and hoping that it just triggers the, the desire in the children to want to go off and find out a little bit more. That's wonderful. I love the fact that the, uh, I'd, f I'd forgotten. I think you mentioned to me before about about the tortoises. And again, that immediately is it's 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 an idea that's sticky. It stays with you. And so very often with the sticky idea, the yeah. other ideas come with it. And I think that's fantastic. There's have you read Michael? Michael Foreman did a lovely book about uh, a man. I think it was in, in Gallipoli in the First World War who found himself in, in a kind of, you know, a, a, a shell hole and was giving up. And then a tortoise was there and he survived yes. the night by talking to the, i think again all of those kind of ideas they that they, they are a gateway into seeing a much bigger part of history and a, and, a, and a, a much deeper part of our story definitely and and they, they send you down all sorts of little rabbit holes too because i learned um, quite a bit about tortoises you find yourself just trying to research things that you never thought you'd be researching like can tortoises have fleas because the narrator is a flea like the first world war book i ended up just researching a lot about carrier pigeons which um i never really thought i'd be that into pigeons but it kind of gets under your skin eventually and you find yourself going, oh that's an interesting fact about a pigeon i never knew that following up on it from there well, I think it's like last week when we had Adam Rutherford on and he was showing, goading me with his first edition of Charles Darwin's uh, yes, Formation of Vegetable Mold Through the Action of Worms. And I think that's one of the great things, again, that is such an important thing to try and convey to children, which is everything, even the thing that appears at first sight to be the most boring thing. If you keep staring at it, if you keep asking questions about it, it becomes it, it grow the fascination grows yeah we're on a, a this rare thing as far as we know the only one found so far a living planet with all of these different things and all of these different possibilities and if you start stare at one little you know square inch you will find something fascinating in that square inch you will and it's it's um there are echoes as well because the thing that i'm actually working on at the moment which i had no intention of working on at this stage but it's come, come about because of the situation we're in is um, a children's book where the children write the story and the pictures. And we're focusing, um, we're going way off the course here now, but on Elizabeth I, because we're looking at the time when she was trapped in the Tower of London by her older sister. And so it's, um, it just seems like a very nice parallel with, with what children are going through at the moment and what their personal situation is with being limited and, and where they can go and adults telling them what they can do and that, you know, that kind of thing. So that's kind of ended up being a project that has has been triggered by the current situation and was absolutely not what I was going to be doing at the current moment. Like you, I was going to be writing and doing something else, which I'm sure you're still doing. I'm meant to, at this moment now, I'm meant to be interviewing <laughs> Jenny Eclair at the Berkhamsted Book Festival, having started the morning interviewing Mike Brearley, the therapist and former English England cricket captain. Yeah, things are very different, but it's but it's fascinating, isn't it? Those bits that you go when you do get sometimes pushed into a corner, and you think, right, what do I start drawing on this corner? What do I start? Yeah. You know, what do I what do I create with that corner? Absolutely. I loved uh, the the Queen Elizabeth I in Bill, the Shakespeare movie. Have you have you seen the, uh, um, the from the team who brought us horrible, horrible histories? That was an absolute delight. Yeah, no, she she's a great character. I mean, that's the thing. That's why Florence is such a great book to um, 
write about as well because they're great characters and when you've got a great character it really takes the story a long way with Florence she attacks my hero at one point with a broom who's because he's a rat there's a rat and she attacks him with a broom and the great thing was um several months later after I'd finished the book it was all published I found a quote where she actually describes meeting a rat and as you probably imagine she didn't run away from it she did literally grab a broom and dispatch it well we've just found out sean mccauliffe who i was mentioning is our wednesday guest his great great grandfather had his leg amputated by florence nightingale so the connections there we go six degrees oh i'm sorry because i couldn't see it's actually finger that's so it turns out wasn't nearly as good if you told me it was finger in the first place i'd never bother telling that story thank you so much for joining us uh kate as i said the the uh, the, the first book that i read is your most recent one uh which is vlad and space race which uh, involves the, the the dogs of the uh the space race uh oh, and uh and you've done great fire of london florence nightingale what's the other one that that's I've... world war the First World War. So where's the best place for, obviously we've been mentioning, you know, independent bookshops. If, if you have an independent bookshop near you, they probably are still ordering books and they're trying to deliver books. You might have seen on, on the internet and on Twitter, there's lots of bookshops who are there going out on their, their bicycles and tricycles delivering books. But what is, where's the best place for people to find out more about? All of, all of the usual places. I've got my, my website, Reading Riddle, um, but all the usual bookshops will be able to, send out Vlad books and uh, Florence Nightingale Museum are still selling and still selling from their bookshop because obviously they're closed at the moment um, because they literally just launched their fabulous um, Florence in 200 Objects exhibition, but they are still selling and they're selling things like Florence Nightingale book, Vlad and Florence Nightingale Adventure. Brilliant. Thank you, Kate Cunningham. Brilliant. So Reading Riddle, if you didn't hear that, but Reading Riddle. And uh, as I mentioned before, uh, we're back next week at seven o'clock doing the show that we would have been doing uh, at the Albert Hall. Uh, British Sea Power, Colby Smulders, loads of uh, C. Say, Steve Backshall, Henry Chersky, Grace Petrie, Josie Long, Chris Hadfield, and on and on and on. We will drag you all the way through to Tuesday. Um, thanks. For Helen is still here, and I'm not sure if Helen can hear us or not, whether she's really watching. Oh, right. So so, Helen, um, have you got, can I just find out in terms of next week, have you got, can you give us any clues of what you might be uh, talking about? Oh, well, obviously, now, obviously, I have far too much to say about the ocean, but I'm, what I, I don't want to give it away, but I do think that a view of the ocean from the inside is what we never get properly the way a fish would see it. And I think I'm going to talk about that a little bit. Brilliant. Well, it's going to be a lot. At one point, you might remember, we were going to have a huge screen that is actually basically a screen made out of water in a, in a tank. And well, now so all we need I, is, you know we what just the best need to buy is, a little aquarium or just have a glass in front brilliant. of us. We'll be able to create that image. But the best thing is that we had all, all like, we, like we have had so many amazing and brilliant ideas. And we were told that quite a lot of them for, for the original season, we were told quite a lot of them weren't practical. But we don't have to tell people that anymore. We, we, we were going to make an aquarium the size of the Royal Albert Hall. And they'll have to believe us because, you know, they won't ever know what well, we feasibly going to do. <laughs> 
yeah, the thing was, it wasn't filling, filling the aquarium. It was emptying it afterwards it. of the issue. We were going to drown Imperial College, it turns out. Um, so I'll see you next Sunday. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Uh, and uh, some of you I'll see back here tomorrow at 10.30 tomorrow morning uh, with Phil Jupiter and, uh, and Josie Long. And don't forget, as I said, on Tuesday, we're doing a, a special show um, that is going to be looking at uh, anxiety and depression and uh, how to deal with it. So if you have any questions about that, um, then please send us those questions or just any kind of points you'd like to make. And uh, also the questions for Steve Backshall for next weekend about that which lives in the sea. Thanks for watching. Bye. Thank you very much for listening. Support us at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. Check out all the other stuff over at cosmicshambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at cosmic shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now.